Sunday morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you wave to them. They'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked our passage this morning. If you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 15, a single verse, verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Now, hold that place and go a little bit to the right in your Bible to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Aren't you glad I didn't say Obadiah? (laughs) The instructions would have been a little lengthier. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit, and I want us to notice that phrase this morning, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for an opportunity to be back together again as a church family on a Sunday morning. We do thank you for the rain that we got this week. We're very grateful for all of that that you want to send our way. And we're grateful, Lord, for the opportunity to worship you in song. And we just bless you from this place. We bless you for who you are, what you do, Lord, your promises, a a grace that cannot be described in any human language or all of the languages put together and that you lavish on us every single day. Lord, you are something, and we love to worship you. And we thank you for your word that you have revealed yourself, your heart, your will, your wisdom, Lord, to us in this book. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would take it off of the page And then, Lord, give it a place of understanding in our heart and write it right into our spirit, Lord, and the living and doing of our Christian life with you and our contact with the rest of the world. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember from our last study of Acts chapter 15 that under the very, very capable leadership of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and other leaders within uh, the church in the city of Antioch in Syria, that that church had become very, very healthy. It had become very strong. It had become by then the most influential church within uh, Christianity. It was the most influential church at that time, even out influencing the city of Jerusalem. And it had become a center for Christian missions and the fulfillment of the Great Commission uh, into all of the world in those early years of church history. 
And in that church, Jews and Gentiles were being saved together. Uh, The Holy Spirit was blessing them. Jews and Gentiles were serving alongside one another. And this great mystery known as the body of Christ, the uniting of Jews and Gentiles into one body and in relationship with God, it had now been fully realized. And then one day, a group of men enters into the city of Antioch and into the church itself. They come from the city of Jerusalem, and they give the indication that they've been uh, sent with the authority of the leadership in Jerusalem, and they began teaching that Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, could not be saved unless they were also circumcised and kept the law of Moses. And when Paul and Barnabas, who had invested long years of their life by this point in time into the health of that church, heard that this was what they'd come to Jerusalem to teach these, uh, this beautiful church and this uh, made up of Jews and Gentiles bringing in this false doctrine, uh, they really, uh, this whole idea that, uh, of what they brought in of this teaching, they really got in their face and a great contention, we're told, occurred. And Paul and Barnabas doubtless rose up and said, salvation isn't on the basis of anything but faith in Jesus. It isn't faith in Jesus and anything, not even things as wonderful under the old covenant as the law of Moses and circumcision. And, and here the decision was then made in that church at Antioch to take the question to Jerusalem to be decided by the apostles and the elders who were there. When they arrived in Jerusalem, the apostles and the leaders listened very patiently and very thoroughly, as you would expect of them, concerning the arguments on both sides. And the Jews that had come out of a pharisaical background, a very strong legalistic background, they got up to speak first before the apostles and elders. And they argued that a person couldn't become a Christian by simply trusting in Jesus, but that it was also necessary that they be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. They gave way on the floor, and Paul and Barnabas then stood up, and they reported to the leaders in Jerusalem all that God had been doing on their first missionary journey in saving Jews and Gentiles indiscriminately and solely on the basis of a faith in Jesus. And following a long discussion, we're told, and as we saw last time, among themselves, and a discussion that involved uh, supremely the Holy Spirit and all of it, these leaders in Jerusalem concluded that salvation is by faith in Jesus alone. That is, that salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the spiritual birth, it is a free gift from God that we receive by simply trusting in Jesus as the solution for our sinful and our separated condition. The report of this judgment was then sent back to Antioch, and where it produced great joy, we're told, in the church there. And the rest is history, really, as, uh, as that uh, gospel then came through 2,000 years of history to ultimately reach our ears and our hearts and allow us to be saved uh, as well. And the gospel, this good news of God's invitation to sinful man, that not only can we receive the forgiveness of sins, 
But with that forgiveness of sins, enter into a relationship with God who created us and God who created all things, that that is received by putting our faith in His Son, that gospel, that invitation to salvation by uh, God had been successfully protected from disaster. And the interesting thing is that this potential disaster didn't come out of the pagan world. It didn't come out of the heathen world or heathen hearts, but rather it came from religious men. It came from legalistic men. And Paul would later write to the church at Ephesus concerning salvation and the gospel that was protected in this council, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, any works, lest any man should boast. Now, I'm not quite ready to leave this passage yet without this morning addressing something that I don't think that we can hear often enough as Christians. And what I'm about to say this morning is going to be a good reminder to some of you, and then for others of us, it might completely revolutionize your understanding of Christianity and your Christian life. In verse 10 of Acts 15, the Apostle Peter made an important observation and an important admission concerning the law uh, that God gave to Moses. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? He described the law of Moses as a yoke. He described it as a, and the yoke was a symbol of bondage. Second, he declared the law of Moses to be unbearable. And uh, the word bear in there means to bear, to carry, to take up. And what he's declaring there to this uh, great group of leaders is that the law of Moses is unkeepable. It is absolutely unkeepable as a means of salvation. And he's declaring that since the law of Moses had been unable to provide salvation to the Jews after all of these thousands of years, how could they ever think that it could then provide salvation to the Gentiles? And it is a very important observation that he makes and an equally important admission that he makes concerning the law of Moses. It's important to realize that the law of Moses was never given by God to man, not only related to the new covenant, but the old covenant. It was never given as a means by which we might establish our own righteousness before God. It wasn't a law given that we might keep in some manner and then earn by virtue of that a right standing before God earn God's acceptance or make ourselves good enough to ever be in heaven or good enough to have a relationship with Him. In fact, the Bible teaches that the law of Moses exposes us as sinners. It's even stronger than that. The Bible teaches that it shuts our mouths from ever saying, I can earn a right standing before God based upon my good works or my human effort. For example, Romans chapter 3, verse 19, Paul writes, But now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and 
all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his, that is, God's sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul wrote later in that same letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verse 20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Now, sometimes people think about themselves, well, you know, I think I'm pretty good. And to which the law of Moses then asks, oh, really? And then the law of Moses strikes up a conversation with such a person and then declares, here is the standard for good. And when he produces the standard for good in the eyes of God, he doesn't merely produce the Ten Commandments, but all of the 613 commandments that made up the law of Moses. And as you read through all of those laws, all 613 of them, it becomes patently clear that you can't come anywhere close to keeping God's commandments. And then suddenly I come to realize that I'm not such a good person after all. When in fact I'm a sinner, I am incapable of gooding myself into heaven. I am incapable of gooding myself into a relationship with God. Now, there's nothing at all wrong with the law of Moses. Sometimes Christians have that idea that there's something terribly wrong with the law of Moses. No, the law of Moses, nothing wrong with it at all. Uh, but it reveals that there's something wrong with us. The Bible teaches that the law of Moses is perfect. Uh, Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So the problem is not with the law, but with man, and that's what the law reveals. The Bible describes the law of Moses as a schoolmaster or a teacher or a tutor. Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes in this vein, and he said, Therefore the law was to uh, our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So a schoolmaster or a teacher, or a tutor is someone who teaches a person uh, something. And one of the things that the law teaches us is that we are a sinner, that we are less than perfect, that we are fallen. And the law of Moses communicates to every single human being in all of human history, you are a sinner, you are a sinner, you are a sinner, you are a sinner, and your self-righteousness is unacceptable to God, and it is unacceptable uh, in heaven, and you need a Savior, you need a Savior, you need a Savior, you need a Savior. And that's what the law of Moses communicates to every single human being. Again, the law keeps me from ever fooling myself by thinking that I can ever make myself acceptable to God by my own effort. And it forces me to begin then 
to search for an alternative righteousness, an acceptable righteousness, to discover the means by which I might attain a righteousness that really does satisfy God's requirement, that does satisfy heaven's requirements. And when a person is honest in that search, the Holy Spirit will be faithful to bring them to a faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul taught that any attempt uh, on to establish my own righteousness or my own right standing before God, that it reveals an ignorance in me. Now, nobody likes being called ignorant, and Paul didn't like calling people ignorant, but it certainly gets our attention. Paul taught that any attempt to establish my own righteousness or right standing before God, that it reveals a fatal ignorance in me an ignorance of the fact that the only righteousness or rightness that God can accept is perfection. Paul declared it in Romans chapter 10. He said, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they all may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it is not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But the Bible also teaches that when a person trusts in Jesus for salvation, a righteousness that we could never, ever earn is put to our account. And the righteousness that is put to our account is the righteousness of Jesus, His perfect righteousness, His rightness, His perfect right-onness is put to our account. Paul speaks of it in, Romans, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For He, speaking of the Father made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin, to bear our sins on the cross, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He spoke the same thing in Romans chapter 4. And therefore it was accounted to him, speaking of Abraham, for righteousness, that is his faith, now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us, that it might be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So that this, when we put our faith in Christ and Jesus' righteousness is put to our account, what that means practically is this, is that now when God looks at us, he never again sees our past sin. He never again sees our unrighteousness. When he looks at us, all he sees is the righteousness of Christ that has been put to our account, which cannot be improved upon or added to in any way. It cannot even be improved upon from even some of the greatest things of the Old Testament, circumcision and the law of Moses. And at that point, 
once I've put my faith in Jesus Christ and His righteousness has been put to my account, a peerless righteousness, an unimprovable righteousness, then at that point, that moment in time, then the law of Moses has done its job in my life. It then hands me off to the Holy Spirit now to take me the rest of the way. Now, one source of legalism among Christians, and there are many, many sources of legalism uh, for this cursed thing called uh, legalism in, in the body of Christ, but one source is a fear in leaders that Christians can't be trusted with liberty that if you entrust liberty, the fullness of the liberty that's described in the Scriptures, that somehow Christians will, by and large, use it to become lawless. And one of the reasons that legalism has such staying power within Christianity is that so many leaders and others believe that you can't keep… that if you don't keep Christians under some kind of law, then they'll become lawless. They'll just become wild-eyed, crazed sinners. They'll become libertines. And thus they endeavor to set up all kinds of laws regarding one thing or another, very often against sin itself. But most often they then will add restrictions against things that they consider to be gateway activities, things that if we engage in, they'll put us on a slippery slope into uh, actual sin uh, itself. These are the things that they contend will always lead to sin. And so they set up all of these laws forbidding even these things. But what they fail to realize or what they choose to ignore is that when we are born again as Christians, God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit comes into our lives It is an indescribable miracle. It's the greatest miracle anyone can ever experience. Think about it. God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit, personally and individually, comes into our lives. And when He comes into our lives, He brings with Him the law of the Spirit. Again, Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And here it is. For the law of the Spirit, of life in Christ Jesus, it's made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, us, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit and the law of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and He then writes that law on the deepest part of our lives, on the fleshly tablets of our heart. Second Corinthians chapter 3, Paul declared, Do we begin again to commend ourselves, 
Or do we need, as some others, epistles of condemnation to you or letters of commendations from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. You are manifestly an epistle or letter of Christ ministered by us. And then here it is. Written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, and not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is the heart. And all of this is not a New Testament invention. It's prophesied of in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And what, one of the things God was declaring through Jeremiah is that he wants a heart relationship with man. Now, when a person becomes a Christian, we do not become lawless. Instead, the Holy Spirit introduces a new law into our lives that, interestingly enough, is even higher and more demanding than the law of Moses. And it's called the law of the Spirit. And the reason that the law of the Spirit is higher and more demanding than the law of Moses is that the law of, Moses, the, law of the Spirit doesn't just deal with our outward actions, but it deals with our heart. It deals with our motivations, our thoughts. It deals with our attitudes. And the law of the Spirit endeavors to conform each of us after Christ. It endeavors to make us more and more like Christ, not only to become more holy, but also to become free. And the law of the Spirit speaks of the active, living work of the Holy Spirit within our lives by means of conviction and by means of affirmation. You see, I got, you see, I need a little window on what it is that you're talking about. Here it is. Let me illustrate how the law of the Spirit operates in our lives as Christians. Here we might be engaged in a conversation with someone and it begins to drift toward gossip or slander. And the Holy Spirit will then, inside of our hearts, in our spirit, He will then communicate to us that this has become gossip, it's become slander, and we are not to engage any further in this conversation as a result. And most of us know that feeling. If not concerning gossip and slander, we understand being in a conversation where God tells us, no more, don't say another word. Or there's a conversation going on that we are dying in our flesh to get engaged in, uh, but it's not going to profit us or anyone else. And the Holy Spirit says to us, don't do it. And part of the learning process 
is to disobey the law of the Spirit and jump in with both feet and make a mess of everything. And then to realize, oh, that was the law of the Spirit operating in my life, endeavoring to keep me from something that wasn't going to be good for God or good for me. Or sometimes you can just get really uptight and tense while you're driving, and you start to get very aggressive, maybe even a little bit unsafe, and you're very, very far from Jesus' teaching to us as Christians that the meek shall inherit the earth, and you say, well, he's never been on a California highway and uh, after an accident, and I'm trying to get there on time or, or whatever it is. And so the Holy Spirit then begins to convict me that I've become impatient now. I've become hurried. I need to back off, and I need to drive in a way that's a blessing to uh, other people and trust that God will take care of me being late or that He will get me there on time. And the Holy Spirit, the law of the Spirit works that way. How many laws would you have to have in the law of Moses just to deal with all the variables that we need to hear while driving? There would be volumes, but we don't need volumes because we have a living law inside of us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, sometimes this, uh, it, it, this kind of thing is demonstrated and, and can center on, you know, the anger where I'm engaged in a conversation with someone about something. Maybe it's a spouse or you're talking with someone about the upcoming election. And uh, you begin to feel your blood rise, and uh, your face is beginning to flush, and your voice is beginning to raise, and then the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart to just back off and let it go, reminds us that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, and it's the law of the Spirit speaking to us and guiding us in that circumstance. We might touch, uh, we might step on some toes here now as we move to another illustration. Maybe you're in a store and you're looking to buy something. And as you're just about, it's caught your eye, you've just about, you got your hand on it, you're just about to take it off of the shelf and the Holy Spirit stops you. And immediately you lose your peace. Have you ever had this happen to you? Am I the only one? You instantly lose your peace to buy this thing. Oh, you want it like crazy. But, I mean, now there's no peace. In fact, there's a sense, a strong sense, that I ought not to buy uh, this uh, particular uh, item because, and it's the Holy Spirit so often speaking that way because He knows that, you know, I don't need it or you don't need it. It's a waste of money because every time we get a little down emotionally, what do we do? We had to target or somewhere and buy something for ourselves instead of letting God bring us up out of that kind of a, of a place. And, and, uh, and so he is using his active presence in our life, revealing his will, his law concerning that purchase in order to lead us out of that kind of a life and oftentimes out of the debt that comes with it, to say nothing of the 300 pairs of shoes that you already own and are in your closet, or, or the 60 pairs of Air Jordans that, uh, you know, clutter in your closet or your garage. And all of it is the law of the Spirit at work in our lives. As people hire life coaches today. 
We've got the greatest life coach. He's more than that. Don't write me a letter. Pastor Damien said the Holy Spirit's a life coach. All illustrations break down. But I, I looked up. I said, what, you know, here we've got, we've got a life coach here who never makes a wrong decision, has our very best interest in mind, is wise off of the graph. He lives inside of us, and he will, he will engage in every issue within our life. You know what you'd have to pay for that? Well, I looked it up for you, so don't go on your phones. A life coach on average earns $35.48 an hour, makes $45,319 annually. We've got the best inside of us, all for free. Look at that. Just, just can, I mean, go to Costco afterwards and buy an extra can of beans. I mean, you're saving $43,000, $45,000 a year just on this aspect of the Christian life. You don't have to make 40 laws about what you can or you can't watch on television or entire volumes filled with laws. What, well, how many laws would you have to write related to uh, Christians and television when you've got a thousand channels to choose from today? Well, it'd be like an encyclopedia series. But you don't need to even have 40 laws about what you can or you can't watch on television. All we need to do is just instruct people to ask the Holy Spirit whether He wants them to watch that show or to visit that website or to play that video game or whatever, and then do precisely what He tells us to do. You see how many laws we'd have to make if we tried to replace the law of the Spirit with a law of our own making in an attempt to make Christians holy or to keep them holy. Now, very often, this law of the Spirit doesn't just express itself in kind of conviction. Very often, uh, he, this law expresses itself in affirmation when we do something uh, that is right. You ever walk away from a conversation or an interaction with another person as a Christian, and you've just got this thing that's happening between you and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's saying to you, wow, you sure were patient with that person. And you let that car in, and I mean, they, and you had to park four rows away as a result of that. You did just what Jesus would have had you do. And I mean, that feels good, doesn't it? Don't you feel good right now? Yeah, I do. I feel good right now. I'm going to go into that store in a great mood. And, and uh, there's that affirmation of the Holy Spirit for a job well done in the law of the Spirit. You see, it isn't a written law, as wonderful as written laws can be in their own way, but it is a living law, and it is a teacher living right inside of me. And his leading and his convictions and his affirmations will always be consistent with uh, God's will as it's revealed uh, in the Bible. And so the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and he knows how to produce a quality of life and a quality of Christianity that will never, ever be produced by legalism. Legalism is so completely unnecessary. And like so many 
heirs in the body of Christ today, it creeps in and it gets a foothold and it gains strength because of a lack of confidence in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is very good at what He does in the Christian life, and his, what He does cannot be improved upon. And one of the reasons that this law of the Spirit produces a quality of life that can never, ever be produced by legalism. It's not only that the Holy Spirit is more specific in His instruction to us than any written law could ever be, but it is that He then provides us with the desire to do God's will. He tells us what to do and provides us with the desire to do that, and then with the power to do that. And no law can ever provide that. Paul wrote of this in Philippians chapter 2, and he said, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and then here's the point, for it is God who works in you both to will, that is to give you the will to obey God, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Legalism not only produces an inferior Christian life, but it provides an inferior motivation for living the Christian life. And allow me two minutes to close on this point. Our obedience to God in Christianity is never intended to come out of a legalistic relationship with God or the relationship that was described between God and man through the law in the Old Testament. The Old Testament law was based upon if, then, if, then. If you keep this, then God will do uh, this. And, and, but for us in the New Testament, our obedience is never if, then. Our obedience is because. Again, our obedience to God in Christianity is never intended to come out of an if-then or a legalistic relationship with God. For example, I will do this in order to earn or merit God's favor or His blessings. You say, what's wrong with that? There's something superior to that, infinitely superior. The Christian life is obedience expressed as a grateful response to how unbelievably good God has been to us. Christianity is a response to what God has done for us. It is not an obedience is, is given as that response, and it is not in order to earn something from Him. I obey God not to earn something from Him supremely, but in order to express my love and my thankfulness to Him. And the Bible teaches that Christianity is a response to what God has first done for us. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, famous verse in this regard, we love Him because He first loved us. Our love for Him 
All of that comes out of response to the love that he first showed us. I think it's fascinating when you look kind of uh, in depth even at the structure of the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. But the entire uh, book models the same thing. In the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, they're all filled with line upon line, precept upon precept concerning all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus how it is that we're chosen and we're predestined and we're redeemed and we're forgiven and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit and we're given resurrection power and we're saved into, the, have the promise of heaven. We've been made members of a family known as the body of Christ. We have access to heaven through prayer and so forth. All of these things that are ours in Christ Jesus, what God has first done for us. And then and only then, after three chapters of that, does Paul, by the Holy Spirit, in writing the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 1, then tell us about the life that is to be lived and the life that is um, uh, consistent in terms of uh, response to all that God has d done for us, a life that is worthy of what God has done for us. And Paul begins chapter 4, verse 1 with, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And then he begins all of this practical instruction in the la latter half of the book. But all of that is to be done in response to what God has first done for us. When we make that our motivation, now we have a motivation for serving him, for obeying him, that is infinite. Because when you think about the cross, you think about all that he has done for us in Christ, you can spend, we can spend all of our lives in eternities responding to what God has done for us in salvation to say nothing of everything else that he's blessed us with as Christians. It is an infinite motivation to love God and to serve God and to obey God. And legalism doesn't produce anything remotely close to it. And so this response to God's love and as a motivation for obedience and for holiness, it will always produce a degree of holiness and Christ-likeness that legalism never can. A simple message this morning, but I think it's a very important one. The reminder, and legalism is everywhere. It's as rampant as it was in the early church. That legalism never improves what Christianity is and what Christianity is intended to be. It always mars it. Always. And the importance, as they did in the early church, to steer clear of it. The Holy Spirit will take us into a holiness and a relationship with God that no one else can and nothing else can. It is the law of the Spirit that we want to pay heed to in our lives. What a wonderful thing it is to live according to the law 
of the Spirit. And no one needs to have any kind of a fear that someone under the law of the Spirit will begin to live some kind of a debauched life. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. In other words, he will never lead us into a life that isn't like Christ or can be condemned. The law of the Spirit, nothing like it. No other law compares to it. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet saved, it's important for you to realize today, and this cuts against the grain of everything within the culture, everything that you've probably heard all of your life except for what you've heard in church, and it's so important for you to hear that you cannot earn a right standing before God. You just simply can't do it. And here's the reason why. You're a sinner, and what is required in terms of rightness or right-onness for heaven is perfection. And you've already fallen short of that. You're already disqualified for that. And so the necessity for you to take God up on his offer to you of salvation and invitation, making it a free gift to you, that God so loved the world, that's you, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that's you, would believe in him, put your trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, you will not perish but have everlasting life and begin a personal relationship with God. And now this law of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will come into your life and lead you into a life that is outrageously excellent. And it's all there for the asking all there for the receiving. When I became a Christian, I was so sick of Damien Kyle. I was so sick of where I was taking myself and life and all of that. I wanted a new law, and I got it in Christianity, the law of the Spirit. You might be in the same place this morning. There'll be pastors and other men and women up in front here this morning after the service, and we'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God this morning. Do you need prayer for something else in your life? They'd love to pray for you related to that uh, issue as well. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, I pray and we pray this morning in, in a world where legalism is so rampant and even so often within the church. And you know how our hearts are just, they're just bent wrongly in that direction that somehow this relationship is about us doing and earning from you. And Lord, it makes us so susceptible to the legalistic approaches of other people. And we thank you for the clarity of your word here this morning. And it's pushing away, it's condemnation of legalism for the child of God. And how inferior it is in the quality of life that it would lead us into. And in the motivations for the Christian life that it provides as compared to the law of the Spirit. And I pray and we pray for one another that 
you continue to take us into that law of the Spirit? Would you give us a fresh sensitivity to the voice of your Holy Spirit and His leadings and His promptings and not only the big issues and, and major issues of our life, but in all of the issues of our life. We acknowledge that if something is important enough to the Holy Spirit to speak to us about, that it's important to us. And so would you continue to grow us, Lord, in this law and then into all of the Christ-likeness, all of the holiness, and all of the freedom that is found there, all of the joy and the peace and the beauty of relationship with you. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.